Jonathan Creek first debuted in 1997 and was an immediate hit. The series' concept, developed by writer David Renwick, was to have actual detection rather than action. And to be honest, that cerebral aspect played well as a break from the norm. Very often the violence was made a mockery or used for comedy to show how unnecessary violence was at solving problems, and the acts of violence themselves were usually done by ignorant people. A notable stylistic element comes in with the theme music, which is Danse Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns, which is known for being used in ads for Jameson's Irish Whiskey, but is also an integral piece to have heard when reading Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. The Jonathan Creek series broke away from normal concepts like Murder, She Wrote's Whodunits and Columbo's How Catchems. Instead, the focus was on the how and the why, often revealing who while in the mix. His companion for most of the series is crime author Maddie Magellan, a kind of low-rent female fletch who works to expose miscarriages of justice, often faulting police detectives. Renwick wanted Maddie to be much more of a platonic partner, and even considered having the character originally be Jonathan's stepmother, and she'd assist him in memory of a murdered spouse and father to the both of them. But Renwick felt that it was too derivative of Batman, and as such, the parents are described as having moved to the United States of America while he stayed in an inherited property an 18th century windmill. Caroline Quentin was an easy choice for Maddie, as she was versatile and had plenty of energy and easy chemistry with different actors. Unfortunately, because Quentin was a bigger woman, Maddie's running gag quickly became that she was always eating, and especially gobbled sweets. The role of Jonathan was offered to several actors. Rick Mayall, who was busy doing stage work, Hugh Laurie, who initially said yes only to renege later when he couldn't understand the motivation, and Nigel Planer, known for roles in everything from Brazil and Blackadder to Yellowbeard, among others, but none of them felt quite right. Finally, Susan Belbin, a previous associate of Runwick's, suggested a young actor she saw during rehearsal for a sitcom, Alan Davies turned up in a duffel coat with his hair long and curly and grinning wide with a youthful charm, and was immediately the kind of humdrum eccentric you might overlook if you passed him on the street. Creek works a day job designing illusions for a stage magician named Adam Klaus. Klaus was originally played by Anthony Head, who later had to hand the part over to Stuart Milligan when Head was cast as Giles on the hit American series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Creek is known for being kind but cynical about flights of fancy, especially when people jump to the conclusion that supernatural elements like ghosts are involved. These aspects of the character were shaped by skeptics like Houdini and James Randi. Oddly enough, there is controversy around Caroline Quentin, who is said to have refused to come back but according to her, she was told the series had moved on after she couldn't initially come back in 2001 because she'd just had a baby. After this, Creek's companions varied from a vlogger and supernatural investigator to a TV presenter and old flame who's now married, 
and eventually Jonathan's wife, Polly. The pilot episode, The Wrestler's Tomb, is feature-length and features the aforementioned Anthony Head, as well as the sixth doctor, Colin Baker. Baker plays an aging artist married to a successful magazine publisher. One afternoon, while his wife is engaged all day at the office, the artist decides to philander for the umpteenth time, but his mistress finds him murdered. The suspicion is on the wife, but how could she have snuck past her secretary, who was outside the room the whole time before the call reached the office about the murder? The purpose of this story is mostly to introduce the characters and start us off, or if it never got greenlit for a TV show, it could just be a fun one-off or TV film series. In episode 2, Jack in the Box, Maddie has campaigned to free a man from prison for murdering a comedian's wife. Not long after, the comedian turns up dead, apparently having shot himself, despite crippling arthritis in his hands. The freed man has also disappeared, but questions linger in Jonathan's mind, like why he can't stop thinking about the uninstalled toilet in the locked bunker where the comedian died. And when he was in prison, why did he keep getting orders of fudge if he hated the stuff? This particular episode is notable for starting with a rather weird ad for bananas that threw me off at first. The solution, though, is a bit grisly. The Reconstituted Corpse is about a woman named Zola Zbuski, pardon my pronunciation, who makes a name for herself as having had more plastic surgeries than any other British woman. Her surgeon and former lover embarrasses her in a TV interview, and later turns up dead, with her DNA on an earring outside his home. Maddie discovers a tape of her at home in the camcorder of a stalker that shows Zola was at home at the exact time the murder took place, from what is shown on the television. But then Zola turns up stone dead inside a wardrobe that Maddie just bought, and that was empty when it was on the street outside. How did Zola get there, and what killed her? This episode was brilliant, and I genuinely enjoyed it. There's a subplot wherein Maddie gets catfished by an older man for a date. Episode 4 is called No Trace of Tracy, and it is one of the better mysteries for this season. A former rock star is engaged to marry a successful, attractive woman when he's knocked unconscious by an attacker in his home. Nothing is missing, but he spends the next several hours trapped in the room, handcuffed to a radiator. At the same time, a 16-year-old girl is seen entering his home, having been a fan of his for years. She disappears soon after. He awakens when the police come around to his home, finding him still handcuffed. Mysteries emerge surrounding a cult of hippies that live on a commune down the road from him, with him as their patron. Particularly after one of them turns up dead with a frog in his throat. This episode plays on the stereotype of men pursuing sexual relations with minors, with a rather satisfying payoff. Although 16 years of age is legally permissible under British laws around consent for heterosexual couplings, it's still frowned on, especially with much older partners. Episode 5 is The House of Monkeys, and with a title like that, how can you not be intrigued? Well, it's a misnomer. 
The house is home to a family of brilliant researchers in biology, medicine, and primatology, and they don't just keep monkeys, but also a gorilla. The part is played by a person in a rather decent costume with an articulated face. Anyway, the patriarch of the family turns up dead, impaled on a samurai sword. The door was locked from the inside, and he can be heard screaming at an attacker, but all the windows are barred. So who got in to do this? Why did they throw books off of his top shelf? Jonathan is called in to help solve the mystery as a friend of the family. Was it the son, the daughter-in-law, or was it the gorilla? This story had a great resolution and series of clues that helped the viewer figure out the solution. On rewatch, you can see how everything was there the whole time. Despite the misleading title, the way Jonathan figures it out is wonderful to watch. Season 2 starts with a Halloween episode entitled Danse Macabre. And I should note that the director of the latter half of season 1 and the first half of season 2 was Sandy Johnson, leading to a nice consistency for the audience going from one season into the next. Anyway, on Halloween night, a writer named Emma Lazarus is shot dead by someone in a skeleton costume. They're later seen carrying Emma's unconscious daughter out, but then get cornered in the garage, only later finding the daughter inside, alone. However, Jonathan is too busy to help Maddie, as his employer, Adam Klaus, is dealing with blackmail from a barmaid. This story features the fifth doctor, Peter Davison, as the local vicar. I felt like it had some good twists and turns to the story, and a satisfying ending. Episode 2, Time Waits for Norman, is a rather curious tale wherein a temporophobe, that is a person afraid of time and the passage thereof, named Norman, seems to be in two places at once, on two different continents. The plot thickens when inside of Norman's wallet is a scrap of paper with nonsense written on it. That clue is not hard to figure out if you think about it a bit. Thank goodness you can pause a streaming show these days. The subplot for the episode revolves around a Seinfeldian plot where Jonathan is having his taxes done and he has a one-night stand with the accountant. But it turns out that she's an animal rights activist and on top of that is bald for some reason. I found the subplot a bit juvenile, but in all, the mystery was satisfying. Episode 3 the Scented Room is back into the locked room mystery format as a priceless painting disappears from a special room in seconds, right in front of the security guard and a group of visiting schoolchildren. Jonathan refuses to help, as the owner of the painting gave he and Adam's magic show a bad review. The clues don't add up as Maddie begs Jonathan to help, in exchange for a share in a rich bounty. I found the resolution to this story dissatisfying, as it involves something not revealed in the story itself. It winds up being Dickensian in a bad way, but to find out what I mean, you'll have to watch.
The last three episodes of season two were all directed by Keith Washington, and they wind up being some of the darkest of the series so far. The two-part story, The Problem at Gallows Gate, revolves around a wealthy man who holds a big party at his mansion in tradition with English elites, where guests are invited to stay the night. When he sees his ex in bed with another man, he goes to the balcony and jumps off, dying upon impact with the pavement below. But if that's the case, then how is it that Adam's older sister, Kitty, sees the same man strangling the same ex in her home? Why were all her stockings in the trash, soaking wet? This particular story winds up having a rather good conclusion and made for a decent two-part episode. The final episode for the season, Mother Redcap, is a rather brilliant one. A judge is placed in police protection when he awakens in the night with only his wife as witness. He seems to have been stabbed, but there was nobody there. The only thing they find is a torn fingernail. And what does this have to do with the mysteries surrounding the disused Mother Redcap Inn, where seven men all died of shock at apparently nothing? I won't lie. This episode is genuinely spooky, and I loved every minute of it. There's a jump scare, but it's earned. There's also a subplot that has Jonathan dating one of the constables that was assigned to protect the judge. That's all for part one. Check back here for part two.